Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet Nicole Lundrigan. She's the author of several critically acclaimed novels, including her latest book, An Unthinkable Thing. It is the story of a young boy scarred by tragedy that brings him into the home of a quote-unquote perfect family, one whose dark secrets begin closing in until a horrifying moment changes absolutely everything. We'll have to wait for that. It's a bit later on. First, though, I'm going to tell you about the most aptly titled movie of the year. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is a wild and woolly adventure where the quirk factor is turned up to 11 and literally anything could happen and does. It's a full-tilt boogie story about a laundromat owner in trouble with the IRS who was sent off to another dimension to battle an evil spirit. I loved it. It's in theaters right now. Check it out when it comes to your local theater. It's really great. And I have one of the stars of the film visiting with me today. His name is Ki Hui Kwan. Now you know him as Short Round, the plucky kid companion to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and from a role in the cult classic comedy adventure, The Goonies. We'll talk about why he chose a return to acting in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once after a 20-year break from Hollywood. Ki Hawei Kwan joins me via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Well, uh, my good friend, Jeff B. Cohen, a.k.a. Chunk from the Goonies, uh, once said to me that no actor willingly gives them acting because it is the greatest profession in the world. Uh, and yeah, I mean, when I was little, I was very fortunate to be in a couple of really memorable roles. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I'm being honest, as I got older, uh, and really began to pursue acting, uh, there was just not a lot of opportunities for me. Uh, and and I, you know, I, I found myself at a at a crossroad where do I want to continue down a path where I don't see a future for myself, or do I want to take the unknown road? Uh, and I chose the unknown over the known because uh, when all you do is just sit around and wait for the phone to ring. Uh, not a job offer, but an opportunity to audition uh, for 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 an uh, for a role, and especially when back then a lot of the projects that did featured Asian characters, they were so one-sided, they were so marginalized, they were so stereotypical, and a lot of them were like you know one or two lines, uh, or if you're lucky, you'll be featured in two or three pages. I've auditioned for a lot of those. Mm -hmm. uh, and it just, it was just, it was, it was disheartening. Uh, it wasn't fun anymore. Uh, and, and, and that's why I stepped away. And it was a very difficult decision to make. Uh, so I went to film school. Uh, and after I graduated, I started working behind the camera. And I was content doing that mm -hmm. until 2018, when a little movie called Crazy Witch Asians came out. And I remember watching it three times in the movie theater and I cried every single time. I cried because it was a, a great movie. It, it was, it was it, with great characters, but I also cried because I had serious FOMO. <laughs> you know, uh, I, 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 I so wanted to be up there on the screen with all my fellow Asian actors. And really, it was really then that, that the idea of getting back to my roots started taking place. 
Um, and so one day I call up an agent friend of mine um, and ask him if he wants to represent me. And this is after decades without an agent. And he said, yes. Two weeks later, literally two weeks later, I got a call about this project, everything, everywhere, all at once. And I read it, absolutely fell in love with the script and in particular, this role, Wayman, I thought it was written for me. Uh, and I wanted it so bad. Well, you've talked about how you felt that that the role of Wayman was written for you. Tell me a little bit about why, because if people haven't seen the movie that are listening to this, it's a little hard to explain, but you're actually playing more than one Wayman. You are playing him in a couple of different universes, and he has vastly different uh, personalities in each of these universes. And what is so beautiful about this performance is how almost in the middle of a sentence, sometimes you change from one Wayman to another and you can feel it in your face. You never get lost. You always, as an audience member, know which one you're, you're uh, looking at. So tell me, why did it resonate so much with you? Well, it, it, from the very, very beginning, I knew it was important that the audience is able to distinguish the different versions of Wayman. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they're so, and they're vastly different. You're listening to Ki Huey Kwan on The Richard Krause Show. Find his new film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, at a theater near you. And the reason why I, I, I felt that this role was written for me is because, you know, looking back uh, my life experience, all those years of, of working in front and behind the camera. And, and, you know, I mean, honestly, a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the experiences, you know, you know, uh, in my life that were ups and downs, you know, peaks and valleys. And, and you know, I always say a, a full life is a life full of ups and downs. And certainly I had it. I had that. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but I mean, I, you know, when I was very young, uh, my family decided to flee Vietnam right after the Vietnam War. So when I was little, my family was separated. Uh, and we were very lucky to be reunited here in America. Uh, so, so just, I mean, when I, when I look back upon my life, I felt that these three different versions of Wayman was me at different parts and, and uh, at different, different times in life and different aspects, different phases of my life. For example, uh, you know, when, 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 when things were tough, you know, I would, you know, uh, uh, go to Wayman in this universe for his optimism for his 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 empathy, for his kindness, uh, when I when I was struggling to stay in the business, you know, I would look to the Alpha Wayman, for you know, for his you know, for for the fight in him, because uh, he's not you know he doesn't give up, he fights, and and he's very mission driven. Uh, and then uh, one of the universes that I love very much was the it was the movie star universe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so all of that, I mean, th that's part of my life. And, and honestly, had, had this role been offered to me 10 or 15 years ago, I don't think I could have done it. Uh, but, but being where I am now, uh, you know, I felt comfortable and I was able, I mean, I literally, I poured my entire life into these three different characters. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it, it's just been a really wonderful journey. Uh, well, it's such a wonderful performance. I enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed watching it so much because unlike so many movies that we see today, I had no idea what was going to happen next. 
And I have said this before, you can say a lot of things about everything, everywhere, all at once, but you can't say that you've ever seen anything quite like it before. So I wonder what it was like when you're reading the script for the first time, I heard that you were crying, that you were laughing. There was a lot of emotion that came out of you, but did you understand it on the first go around? It must've been very complicated. Uh, it was, uh, I was warned and, and from the very beginning, uh, and I was told that in order to fully understand the script, you need to go watch Squid's Army Man, which is their first, the mm-hmm. Daniel's first feature. Uh, and I remember watching Swiss Army Man and I laughed, I cried, I was totally immersed in the movie. And I said, man, if these directors can take such an outrageous premise about a corpse that farts throughout the entire movie and, 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 ha- and, and have me in tears, I think they can do anything. And when I sat down and I turned the first page, I, I was overwhelmed with emotions because one, I don't think I've ever read a script that features a Chinese family the way it did in this movie. Uh, it was beautifully written. Uh, and, and as not knowing what the story was about, I kept turning the page and turning the page. And still, this family was still in the script. Mm-hmm. Unlike, I think, I think I said earlier, unlike the scripts that I read when I was in my late teens and my early 20s. So it was really refreshing. And for some reason, I got it. I understood it. You know, it's, I, yes, it's a crazy science fiction drama with, you know, comedy and it's action packed. But at the core of it, it was about this family was, that was that's trying to be together, to, to be connected with each other uh, during difficult times. And, and that was what I gravitated towards, uh, was the emotional aspect of the, of the script. Well, what I loved was not only the, did it not, I mean, it made my eyeballs dance. I loved that. Just watching it, it was, was so much fun. I loved the performances, but for me, what I took away at the core of it, that it's about kindness and, and, and being nice. These things that we seem to not value as much these days as maybe we once did. Uh, and yet, uh, at, by the end of this movie, you've had this wild ride and there's this very simple, but I thought very potent message at the end of it. Just, just be nice and everything will be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I love Wayman so much. You know, he, you know, he, not only is he an optimist, but he's, he also really believes in empathy. Yeah. And, and, and especially, I mean, empathy, you know, it, you know, creates a pathway for understanding and acceptance. Uh, and I certainly feel that, you know, we need it more than ever, especially what, what everybody has gone through in the last two years. I understand it's been difficult for everybody. Uh, so it, that, that's why, you know, it is my hope that when people go watch our movie, uh, you know, they can escape the real world for a couple of hours and then walk away from it feeling like they, you know, they, they, they just witnessed a great conversation being had a conversation about family, love, and connection. And also, I mean, most importantly is, you know, the message, you know, like you said about kindness, but also, you know, that we are all entitled to be uniquely ourselves and to feel just simply, you know, that's enough. One of the things that makes Wayman uh, uniquely himself uh, is that he has an unusual weapon. He has a fanny pack that he uses in a very skillful way uh, to fight off. So you've got it right. <laughs> I love that so By much. The way, this, so this is the fanny pack that I brought home to practice. Right. No. So tell uh, me about that. Apparently your wife didn't love that you were practicing at home. 
Well, this fanny pack fully extended is 67 feet long. And can you imagine, I mean, I was swinging this thing everywhere I went in my house, to the kitchen, to the bedroom, to the living room. And, and I, I was constantly hitting things. I was breaking things left and right. Uh, and so, yeah, so my wife wasn't too happy. She kept saying, honey, go into the backyard and practice. Don't practice in the house. But I mean, I would be watching television and I would still be swinging it around my neck, around my shoulders, because it's such a it's such a, a difficult style to master. Mm. Uh, the particular style is called Wushu Rope Dart. And it's something that I've never learned before. I studied Taekwondo. Uh, so, so, you know, it, there was a lot of pressure for me to deliver because not only is it a great action sequence, but also when you do a movie with Michelle Yeoh, she's freaking the queen of martial arts movies. So you really need to step up and bring your A game, you know? So yeah, luckily I had all that time to, uh, to train. Well, it's fantastic in the movie. Uh, I think we're almost out of time here. I just have one question here. And I read a quote from you where you say uh, that people will come up to you on the street and say, you're the OG. You paved the way for us to be here with the success of Crazy Rich Asians and fresh off the boat on television uh, with the success of this movie, which is already doing very well in theaters and, and so many other things that are showcasing Asian culture. Um, do you feel like the OG? Do you feel, do, how do you feel about that when they say that to you? You know, you know, um, uh, yes, over the, over the, over the years, I've met a lot of Asian talents working in Hollywood and, and they do come up uh, they tell me I'm the OG, um, uh, and they and they thank me for paving the way for them to be here. And honestly, they are also the one that paved the way for my return. And I'm so grateful to see, um, you know, for the for the Asian representation that we've been seeing for the last few years. Well, it obviously makes you emotional. And, and I understand that because this is something that you dreamed about, I guess, for decades. And, and here it is manifest in front of you. And I think that last answer that you just gave me and the emotion that came out of you uh, proves and shows how important representation is on screen. I, I'm, I'm so I'm so bad at this. Every time I talk about it, I, I get emotional. <laughs> and and you, you, you know what? You're absolutely right. You're listening to Ki Huey Kwan on the Richard Krause Show. Find his movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, in theaters now. If, if my return to acting says anything, it is a testament to how important it is. Not just Asians, but every group of people to be represented in entertainment. Mm -hmm. And it's until you see it, you still can't believe that it is you. It also could be you up there on the screen. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, my, I'm so happy, but I don't want to look back. I want to look forward. Absolutely. And I want to be optimistic and I'm very inspired and I'm very hopeful where things are right now and where we're heading. Uh, I know there's still a lot more work to be done, uh, but with all sustainable improvements, you know, it always happened gradually. Uh, and yes, I'm, 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 I'm very happy uh, and I'm very grateful for, uh, for how things are going. This is Wang. This is Wang. Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention.
Now you may only see a pile of receipts, but I see a story. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. your husband. I'm another version of him from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. Uh, long time to help you. James Hong, that must have been exciting to work with him. Such a legend. And to be able to spend time and work with him must have really meant something. Yes. And, and if you want to talk about OG, that yeah. is the ultimate OG. Uh, you know, we, we share a lot of stories about uh, working in Hollywood decades ago, especially him, because he started in the 1950s. And, and he was telling me stories about how his name is James. But people back then always refer to him or call him, you know, the Chinaman, the Chinaman, get the Chinaman on the set. They never called his name. That was the story that he shared with me. And I remember hearing it and, and I was very emotional. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, it's James is not a difficult name to pronounce, you know. Uh, so, I mean, again, I think he shares my sentiment. Uh, he said, you know, he waited 70 years for us to to be here, to, to, to you know, for the for the representation that we have been longing for. You know, so he waited much longer than I that I did. You know, I waited only only, you know, 30, you know, 30 something years. He waited 70 years. Um, and so to be able to work with him in this movie, it, it's truly inspiring. And that guy's 93 years old. And it's incredible to see that his passion for acting is still burning bright and strong after being in this business for 70 years. And that is incredible. You've been listening to Ki Huey Kwan on The Richard Krause Show talking about his new film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I hope you enjoyed the conversation that I had with Ki Huey Kwan in the last couple of segments. He's great. Go see his movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. You won't be disappointed, and I guarantee you, you've never seen a movie quite like it. We're going to switch gears now, though, and meet Nicole Lundergan. She is the author of several critically acclaimed novels, including Hideaway, which was shortlisted for the Arthur Ellis Award for Best Crime Novel, and her latest book, which is in stores right now, called An Unthinkable Thing. It's the story of a young boy scarred by tragedy who goes to live in the home of a perfect family, one whose dark secrets begin closing in until a horrifying moment changes everything. Nicole Lundergan joined me via Zoom. How did you come uh, to write about murder, about gothic horror, uh, its literary suspense? Tell me a little bit about how you came to that genre. Um, you know, I never really intended to be a writer, I think. I was doing my master's degree and um, just, uh, you know, plan to go on to do a PhD. But I had a daughter slowly, uh, shortly after I finished that. And then that I underestimated <laughs> how that kind of changes the trajectory of your life. So um, after she was born, I know I called my grandmother and I said, you know, I had a little girl and she said, well, don't forget about your career. So, you know, no pressure. Um, three hours old, the baby was, <laughs> uh, so I ended up thinking like, what, what can I do, um, that, uh, cause my background was in science 
And so I knew I could research. I knew I could write a, a paper. So the first thing I actually did was write the story of my daughter's birth. And she was born at home in a, in the water. Mm. And uh, so that was published. And uh, I thought, okay, I thought I had some very naive idea to write a book. And uh, I ended up telling my mother that I was going to write a book. And she said, well, if you want me to read it, you'd better put a murder in it. And so that was, uh, I thought, okay, well, I do want her to read it. So I best, uh, you know, put, put some, some crime in there, something, uh, you know, a little bit of death and she'll uh, something juicy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that was the start really. Wow. That is not the answer that I thought I was going to get (laughs) from that question. And did you take creative writing classes or you probably just read all your life and you just sort of had the structure in your head? Um, No, I did take a writing class in grade 11 in high school. Um, and I, to be very honest, I'm, I, growing up, I was never a huge reader. I know I've heard a lot of writers, they say that was their favorite thing to do when they, they were young. And I grew up in a family with uh, five siblings, four brothers, and we were always out, you know, lots of times up to no good, which does create material for writing, (laughs) um, but not really, um, just, you know, at home with my nose in a book. Um, but so didn't, again, very naive when I started writing, I had no idea what I was doing. And, um, that first book that I tried ended up being picked up by a Newfoundland publisher called Breakwater. And I learned a lot writing that, um, you know, what I could have done better, uh, you know, feedback from people. And then the second book I wrote, I think I did a little bit of a better job, and then now this book is book eight. So I hope I'm gradually learning and improving, but very much by doing, not from you know, being taught at all. And when did you realize that this was something that you would do? It's one thing to write one book. I've yeah. written a bunch of books. I have 10 or 11 books out. Okay. And after the first one came, I thought, oh, no. Now I have to do this again. It's so hard to write to, to do it. And when yeah. it when it finally came on, I thought, oh man, I've wanted this my entire life, and now I have to do it again. You yes. fell into it almost. When did yeah. you realize, like, well, this is this is what I do now? Um, I, I don't I don't really know for sure. I mean, when my kids were young, I ended up actually homeschooling them. So that uh, led to, um, you know, you know, I could work at night or when they were in, you know, they had, were in co-op or all these different lessons. So I would j- spend my time writing. Um, but I do understand that feeling when you finish a book, you feel a little bit relieved because you're yep. finished, but then shortly behind that comes this kind of hammer of dread <laughs> that you might actually do this again. Yeah. Um, so it's just, I, I, I'm very competitive with myself. So I really want to write something. I think, yes, that's a super duper. So I, I keep working towards that. You're listening to Nicole Lundergan on The Richard Krause Show. Her new novel, An Unthinkable Thing, is available wherever you buy fine books. So each book, I think oh, I could have done that a little bit better. So mm-hmm. I said, okay, next time I'm going to improve that. So part of it is maybe like a competitive thing with myself. Um, But I'm not sure. I just keep going. For you, is the art of it in the writing or the rewriting? For me, it's always in the rewriting. I tend to get the thing down and then like a sculptor, just start knocking little bits off that don't belong in there. 
Yeah, I totally understand that sort of, you you know, you pad and sculpt. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with, um, I tend to, if I'm writing and it gets a little bit difficult, I'll go back and I will then, um, you know, edit or, you know, rewrite and then feel like I'm making progress if I'm mm-hmm. stuck. Um, but very much the rewriting is what I enjoy. That first draft, getting that down on paper, I find it super, super tough. But the rewriting and that editing, especially when you get feedback from an editor or, you know, other people, um, it just, you have something to work with. So mm-hmm. I like that part better, for sure. And, and you don't mind the, what they call killing your angels? You may have parts that you love, but the editor says, you know what, it doesn't work. It's got to go. I think first book, I was a little more sensitive to that. Um, just, you know, uh, you, you like a sentence or you like a phrase or, um, you know, a scene that really feels special because it's maybe more personally connected. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more that I write, the more that I learn that you have to listen to other people, whether it's your agent or your editor, um, and because they often know better because you're inside of your book for a year, two years, three years sometimes, and you really do lose perspective. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I, I don't mind trimming. It's uh, I'm pretty good with taking advice. As yeah. you're putting these things together, uh, particularly in this kind of genre, do you have to know the end of the story before you start writing or do you find it along the way? Um. I find sometimes I have an idea of what the ending is, but then as I'm writing, I feel, and I don't know if you you feel the same way, but you get to know your characters as you write them. So even though you set out with an intention that this is the way this person is going to be, it doesn't necessarily turn out that way. And sometimes you can't nudge a character to do the thing that you had wanted or expected them to do. So you have to change tracks. Um, with this book, I had an ending in mind and, but it completely changed as I, you know, went through various iterations of the book. So I know other writers, um, they plot and they plan out what they're going to do. I'm very jealous of that because I think that (laughs) takes a lot of work up front and it also makes your life easier. And I think it's like, for me, sometimes like past self sabotages future self, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, I always regret not, uh, you know, taking more time at the beginning and I just kind of launch headlong into it, but it, somehow it, it comes together in the end more painfully perhaps, but it does. In our conversation, uh, you've talked about uh, growing up with five siblings, you have yeah. children, you, you homeschooled them. It's yeah. Family seems to be sort of a key element in life and your books often take place within a family union unit. Yeah. Uh, I've I've heard the term domestic noir yeah. thrown around a little bit there. Is that a case of I don't know writing what you know or or just using some sort of <laughs> they're pretty dark stories, so I hope it's not writing what you know. But is there some element of that to it? Um, I'm not sure how to answer that. <laughs> um, maybe a little bit of writing what you know. I mean, you you have a large family. There's always sort of. Um, things you can draw on, but I don't want to be too specific. Yeah. Um, you know, just areas that I'm interested in. Gosh, this, that's a tough question. Well, let's talk about an unthinkable thing. It's set in the 1950s. What kind of research do you do for uh, that? For me with research, if I'm, as I'm writing uh, and I come upon something that I, I need to research, then I'll just start Googling. 
Um, so it's not that I spend an, an, a huge amount of time at the start to research. It's more of little bits along the way, things right. that I feel will make uh, the story more authentic. And sometimes I'll just be researching and you go down a rabbit hole and you find interesting little tidbits that you think, oh, I can work in that later. Or that's kind of something that, uh, you know, a little, you know, a um, type of cereal or um, a type of clothing right. or a phrase. So all these things. But um, there is a fair bit of research, but it happens sporadically throughout the writing process. This book reminded me kind of of uh, a movie like Blue Velvet or something like that. Story-wise, they don't have much to do with one another. They have nothing to do with one another. But uh, it's all about this perfect kind of veneer that people see from the outside. But then you start to peel that away and there was something much more sinister lying underneath. Yeah, uh, for sure. To have that kind of veneer there and what's going on beneath it because you meet this family, this very wealthy family at the start. And they have every single privilege, every single opportunity. And then, but once you, and they have a whole amount of respect within the, the community. But when you get beneath that and you start to see this family for who they really are, there's a whole lot of other uh, elements uh, happening there, which it's, it's definitely fun to work with. And are there themes that reoccur in this book uh, that you would say or kind of a through line in your other books and into this one? I never really thought about it before, but I did read something, uh, I don't know if it was an article um, about uh, someone who had read a number of my books. And I always find that a little bit unnerving or disconcerting <laughs> because what am I revealing about myself if right. I'm repeating themes or if I repeat a particular uh, you know, scene or something in two books, then people will obviously know that that's factual. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't probably make up the same thing twice. Um, someone had said uh, there was a theme about, um, you know, mothers, uh, like disconnected mothers or, um, you know, maternal abandonment or that type of thing, which uh, I had someone say that I tend to be easier on the male characters than the female characters, mm. which I thought was was interesting and the whole um you know mother like um tough moms um it uh yeah I, I don't know why that just seems to crop up a little bit do you take reviews seriously is there something that that sticks with you um earlier you know with the first couple of books I would um even if I had a nice review I'd sort of zone in on that one little negative comment and like oh you know and it I found it really, really difficult, mm -hmm. um, very like, just upsetting if there was, even if there was positives and there was some like, but she, you know, could have, right. blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, yeah, I found that very hard because it was um, just, you put so much into a book and it takes a huge amount of effort and um, you know, especially with the earlier books, you know, you're, it's not that you're having a huge readership or reaching a huge amount of people. It's more of just, I, I don't know exactly how to explain, but as I, as I've progressed and continue writing, I feel good about what I've done and the effort that I've made. And if somebody doesn't like it, that's their opinion. So I've gotten a little tougher. You're listening to Nicole Lundrigan on the Richard Krauss show. Her new novel, An Unthinkable Thing, is available wherever you buy fine books. You've lived in a French castle. You have rescued sea turtles. Uh, you've been on archaeological digs. You've done all sorts of 
interesting and and kind of wild things that a lot of us haven't done. Does any of that stuff, you know, digging up old skeletons and things, does any of that influence your work? Um, I, I have that in my bio on my website because after that is nothing exciting. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Then, yeah, nothing. Um, so that's all happened in my in my 20s, which is a few decades ago. Um, but the whole living in the French Chateau thing, there's definitely themes of that in an unthinkable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just that uh, tremendous, it was a baron and a baroness that I lived with. And on the outside, it was very, uh, you know, like very regal, like a 50 bedroom castle. They had a, a Doberman named Dracula. Um, <laughs> but there was a lot of I have a lot of good stories from yeah. from that uh, four months living there. A lot of unusual things were happening in that uh, in that place. Um, so there's definitely some elements of uh, that aspect going into the book. Um, and I think I've always been drawn, like with the, with the um, archaeology, uh, you know, osteology, studying bones, that type of thing. I've always been drawn to forensics and crime and. Um, the science behind it. So very much uh, that sort of scientific aspect has gone into the book because there's, you know, you've got evidence files and Mm -hmm. um, uh, just really breaking down, you know, different elements of um, analyzing a crime, you know, 1950 style, of course. So it's a little different. (laughs) And were the Baron, I just love this, the Baron and the Baroness, were they those kind of uh, French aristocrats who don't have any money anymore, but still have the big 50 room uh, castle or what was the situation there? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I think that was, might've been in 1989. I think it was the same. I was there when the Berlin wall came down. Right. So that was a big topic of conversation in, you know, around the dinner table in France. Um, but uh, no, I think they were doing okay. But they had fields <laughs> The first night that I arrived there, they had, um, I was picked up um, uh, by the Baron at a, um, a uh, at the train station in Paris, and then we drove north, I think it was in Paris, and um, we went to this place in Normandy, and I was told not to tell the Baroness that we went there. <laughs> Here's some money, go shopping with my kids. So I was like, okay, well, this is, uh, this is odd, but yeah, I'll go with it. And then we were driving back. He was fairly inebriated, so to speak. And we were in a Jeep and there were no doors on the side of the Jeep. And then he, we got close to his land and there was uh, these fields, I think of wheat or something. And there was a fox uh, going, he saw a fox hopping through and he took the wheel and turned like, turned it at high speed. And we were, we were barreling through this field of wheat trying to run over a fox. We didn't. But I was like, hello, <laughs> I just came from Upper Gullies, Newfoundland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm with the Baron in a in a field and with a kid bouncing around in the back trying to hold on. And the weed is flicking in the door. Um, yeah, so it was it was. Uh, and then we pull up to this massive chateau and a Doberman just runs right at me. And uh, yeah, so it was um, it was a good introduction to what <laughs> Well, that's a book right there. That that has to be your next book right there. Living with yeah. the Baron and Baroness. 
It was a little crazy. That was Nicole Lundergan on The Richard Krause Show. Find her book, An Unthinkable Thing, wherever fine books are sold. Big thanks to Nicole. Also, a huge thanks to Key Hawaii Kwan for joining me to talk about everything, everywhere, all the time in theaters right now. Of course, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird. We'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) 